Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet Emmy Award-winning documentary filmmakers Dan Geller and Dana Goldfein, who have created a really fascinating look at Canadian singer and poet Leonard Cohen called Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. And it uses some of his most famous songs as a starting point to tell the story. We'll find out why one of Cohen's most famous songs was rejected by his record company, and much more. That's a little bit later on. We'll also get to know Liz Locke. If you like cocktails and classic movies, like I do, you'll want to check out her site, cinemasips.com, and then check out her debut novel, Follow the Sun, which is a portrait of the 1960s international jet set era through the eyes of an aspiring singer-songwriter. More on that just a little bit later on. First up, though, let's meet Pete Son, director of the new Pixar film Elemental. He is an animator, a voice actor, a storyboard artist, and film director known for directing 2015's The Good Dinosaur. He's also been the voice of Emile in Ratatouille, Squishy in Monsters University, and Socks in Lightyear. He returns to the big screen with Elemental, a beautifully animated film that takes place in a city where fire, water, land, and air residents live together. With that as a backdrop, a fiery young woman and a go-with-the-flow guy are about to discover something elemental, how much they have in common. The story is a fantasy, but has roots in Son's family story. Here is Elemental director Pete Son. Meet the residents of Element City. Air usually has their head in the clouds. Oh, my new jacket! Earth can be a little seedy. <laughs> Nothing weird going on here. Uh, just a little pruning. Water is always getting into something. Oh. Oh. Help! And fire? As ordered, we run a little hot. When you were growing up, you used to watch animated films with your mom and yes. your dad. Tell me a little bit about what films they were and yeah. what influence you think they had on you. Um, yeah, it was mostly with my mom. My dad was always working, but uh, mm. my mom, whenever the store made enough money, we would take the money to the bank, and uh, if there was anything left over, my mom would take us to the movies. Mm. And uh, she grew up loving them in Korea and in the United States, but she couldn't translate all of them all the time, and so, uh, or she didn't understand the English all the time, and so my brother and I always translated for her. Um, uh, uh, I know Dumbo was something that I mentioned uh, earlier, but it was a lot of these animated movies or family films that were just told universally so well. I remember seeing Back to the Future. There's this one shot of, of the characters explaining the time travel. And my brother and I usually would be like, we're going to have to explain this to my mother. But the visual tell of seeing a dog and a clock and the numbers changing and then a minute jumping, she totally understood it. And uh, that idea of something being universal has always, you know, um, 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 jumped into what I'm working on. Uh, I remember seeing Mary Poppins with her, and there was a moment where they jumped into it. Bert does this chalk drawing, right. and they jump into the drawing. And I remember my mother taking a gasp, like, <gasps> like she was surprised by that. We, and I was too, uh, um, um, but that idea of jumping into something that, has, that was so explosive with imagination is also that other ingredient of the universality and then just like magic, you know. And you bring that to Elemental. 
hoping, you know, hoping, yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> well, tell me a little bit about the character creation yeah. of uh, Elemental, because the, the characters are so beautiful, uh, and again, they have to make sense for the characters. They have to be able to interact with yes. one another, which when you're dealing with fire and water, there's, yeah. there's, there's, a, there's an yeah. issue. So tell me a little bit about creating those characters. Yeah, um, it starts off as just a fun doodle. Mm. It really was just exploring and letting the, uh, almost like free writing, but with drawing, where you're just letting the pencil guide you. And uh, I, I stumbled upon um, a fire character, and it didn't look anything like Ember. It was this short, squatty thing. And then you're just like, mm. oh, what would a door look? How would they open a door? Like, oh, they would just fit through the crack. Oh, and it was a very abstract thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, like, would they burn the chair that they're sitting in? You know, and all that stuff. But it became so abstract, people, every time I pitched it, people were like, wait, so how is this going to work? <laughs> And then so there was a little bit of a grounding that happened where all of a sudden a little bit of an anthropomorphized sort of thing started to happen to them where like, oh, she's a woman. Like it was so funny, like without the hips, she looked like a little kid or without like right. parts. And so you wanted to get a, a grounding to it. So it was just that evolution just in the design. And then um, working with the story team and the writers, then the characters started figuring out those other layers. And how long does it take that process? Because Pixar is exacting Yes. in their specifications for their films. They'll, yes. they'll shoot stuff and then throw it away and start again. So how long is that process? It's a good question, Richard. I feel like it's such a blur right now because we're literally <laughs> finishing the film still. But I think that process was at least a good year and a half yeah. of just experimentation or the skunk works sort of thing that we were doing. And then once we got to something close, we had to throw them into the making of the film. So we were already doing productions as we were making the film. Then we just started tweaking at the same time, trying to get to that exacting thing. But they were so elusive to that. Mm -hmm. You know, like when you design Buzz or Mater or, or Lightning, once you've made the model, they are right. done. That's the model. And then you Correct. just put it through the exercise. But these characters kept moving that you were never really done until, you know, they took the film away from you. You're listening to Pete Son on The Richard Krauss Show. His film, Elemental, is in theaters right now. And you have done voice work as well yeah, yeah. Uh, as directing. And so I imagine that gives you some insight into yeah. casting because, again, you know, David Cronenberg says... Yeah. Casting is ninety percent of of the of the the filmmakers, the yes. director's art. So finding these voices, the perfect voices, must be a bit of work as well. Absolutely, we have a casting team, but even with as you know the research that went into each voice, it, there's so many people that we listen to. But then it was these two performances that just popped out that mm. I had discovered on my own. Uh, of Ember, uh, played by Leah Lewis uh, from this movie called The Half of It. And she had this temper but love for her family that was really raw. And then right. she could be vulnerable. And Mamadou Ache did these really funny um, scenes in a movie called Uncork where she was, he was just flirting. And then he could cry like nobody's business. Yeah. <laughs> he could cry in this really funny way. And Wade is such an emotional character and that it just started merging. And Ember's parents are immigrants yes. to the, their home. Uh, and that's a personal story for you. We talked about your yes. mom uh, a little bit and your, your dad a little bit. Yeah. But tell me about weaving this personal story into this fantastical yeah. uh, film. I have never done anything this personal before. And so it was quite a challenge. Uh, uh, mixing some of your personal life, there's always the fear that it's going to get criticized and chomped on and mm. uh, un stomped on as it did. Right. And it hurts. But at the same time, um, um, you've got a lot of support and you're just trying to find the truth to this yeah, thing. Yeah. And uh, that was the game, trying to find the fun and the emotion. 
And have your parents? I mean, you must have told them. They must I did know. tell them. Yeah. yeah, they were. They weren't quite sure because I was just asking them all these questions. Um, but they both passed away during the making of this. But I know my mom got to see um, um, some of the early footage because she, she was a year and a half ago, and she was just like interested in it. But she could never have seen it. But like, I know that they would have really enjoyed the film just because. You know, it's making fun of them, and like they would have laughed at like how you know we eat spicy food in our family, and so we have the fire characters eating these hot coals, and I think she would have loved that. Well, also, it's it's full circle from taking yeah. into the movies when you were a kid. I mean, it's, yeah. it's such a it, it's such a great thing, yeah, which very few people ever get to experience. I, I absolutely, you know, appreciate that just because that's hitting me. Yeah, that uh, it, that uh, um, um, it's a gift. It's a gift for sure. And the story must have evolved a, a great deal. So yeah. you have this, these great characters. Yeah. You've got this idea, this yeah. personal core. Yeah. Uh, but then what happens? You try out different <laughs> outfits. Honestly, you're trying, you know, like, uh, you know, like you're trying outfits that are much larger, but then it's got a presence to it. But then you're like, ah, but there's all this other stuff that we don't need. And then you start trimming the story. Mm. And then until it, it fits just right in a certain area, like, okay, that fits. Let's start working in the other areas. And uh, but. Um, uh, the North Star was always about trying to thank our parents, and so even though there's a Romeo Juliet a a a a aspect to the story, it's really a triangle. It's really about um, um, this young woman meeting this young man, but then there's a father and a daughter story that's going on, and then the conflict that happens with that father and this other. I mean, it's a story that's been told, but what's been fun is our twists on this and the authentic truth of what it is to be first and second generation mm -hmm. in that type of story, and so that's been really something I'm very proud of. As you say, I think the, the key here is that you're always chipping away, yeah. right? So yes. less really is more, Yes, I think, when you're, when you're creating something like this, right? Yes, absolutely. I, I love that you know that. It, it's not something that I knew right away. Well, it seems counterintuitive, right? Yes, yes. And screen, you gotta have yeah. a, you know, a yeah. lot going on. And trying to continue to make something resonate, you can't do that. Like, it, the chords can get all mumble, you know, right. jumbled but you have to make sure that the chord is nice and simple to have that resonance, and we, we try our best to do that. And what do you hope people who are watching this, as you say, you're still working on it, the yeah. film is still wet. Yeah, uh, so, yes. But when audiences get, do get a chance to see this, what do yeah. you hope they, they learn from it or take away from I it? I just hope they have a really great time at the movies, yeah. honestly, like that's what we've been building it for. We, all the artists show their footage and work on the big screen, and so you're always looking at it at that level. You know, the temple of cinema, yeah. there's the movie theater, yeah. and. Uh, uh, and so just the joys of what I and we all grew up loving in the movies is our goal of trying to connect in that way. Uh, if anything, as long as if you're having fun, that's great. But also maybe hug your parents, you know, and uh, be grateful, you know, a little bit of that love. Yeah. You've been at Pixar for some time now. Yeah. Does it still kind of blow your mind every time you walk through the door? Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, I've been there 23 years. and. Uh, you know what's great about it is that, like, I used to work in LA at other studios, and once you're done with a film, you're sort of off, right. and then you uh, and then you come find another show. This place is an old school studio setting where you're getting to see people grow. There's always a new influx, but on a new sh on a new show, there's all of a sudden like, oh my goodness, this guy just he went from you know uh, shooting free throws to slam dunking, or she just rocked this sprint and just jumped five feet further than she had before, and there's always this sort of amazing feeling of talent that's being displayed uh, all the time there and so it's always like that. Peter, thanks so much. Thank Pleasure you, Richard. Thank you, you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Peter Son, director of Elemental. 
the new Pixar film will be in theaters absolutely everywhere next week on June 16th. Let's meet Liz Locke, the founder of Cinemasips.com, a weekly guide to cocktail and movie pairings. She's also the author of Follow the Sun, a new novel now available wherever fine books are sold that is set amid the glamorous international jet set of the 1960s. It follows socialite Caroline Kimball, a woman of generational wealth who wants to break free and become a singer and songwriter. Liz Locke joined me via Zoom from Austin, Texas. This book is set at a very specific time. So tell me what it is about the pop culture of the 1960s and beyond that really has grabbed you. Um, yeah, absolutely. It is my favorite era. Um, I think as a kid, um, these were the shows, the television shows and the movies of the 1960s were what were shown, um, you know, in the early 90s. So I grew up on, you know, the Brady Bunch, Bewitched, mm -hmm. I Dream of Jeannie, um, and it really got me hooked on the era. Um, and then my dad and I always used to listen to the, you know, the oldies station in Pittsburgh where I grew up. And uh, yeah, like the m music of that time period, that's always what I was into. The beat, I was the kid who loved the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, you know, I would wait all day for Mrs. Robinson to come on the radio, <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, so I never really grew out of that, I think. I've always loved that era. Um, and then when I found uh, out about the photographer Slim Aarons had shot a lot of this era um, through his work for different publications of the time period, like Town and Country and Holiday, he photographed the 1960s jet set. And I saw these photographs and I was hooked. Um, it just spoke to everything that I've always loved pop culture wise. <laughs> well, there's a real glamour to it that yes. is certainly missing now from uh, from <laughs> that era and from that from that. I, I don't know if we even have a jet set anymore, but I guess it'd be influencers now. Probably. Right. I don't know. Right. But there's a real <laughs> glamour to this. And so tell me, uh, I mean, you look at the photographs, you see the films and the television shows, and it's the clothes and everything mm -hmm. about it that just seems to add up uh, to something that not only entertains the eye, but really makes you think a little bit as well. Absolutely. And I think like, you know, mid-century modern design is still so popular because people took the time to get the details right, whether it be clothes or um, architecture, um, just general fabrics, interior design, um, you know, it, I think it speaks to like this attention to detail and the tailoring of that time period that I just don't see in a lot of modern things. Um, and I think that that's a lot, a big reason why we still gravitate toward it. And I think there's also, there was some optimism toward the future back then. Um, you know, the, certainly the style was, this is what we thought the future would look like. <laughs> Yeah. It did not turn out that way. But, you know, I think um, I, you know, I still kind of tend to surround myself with that stuff with a lot of the mid-century modern trappings. <laughs> so. so the book is very rich in detail uh, mm -hmm. about uh, the, the, the style of the time. What sort of research? I mean, you've been doing it your entire life, but you must have done some very specific research uh, for the book. Yes. Um, well, like I said, it all kind of started with uh, Slimarin's photography. I was in a little bookstore in Amsterdam and found uh, the book Poolside by Slimarin's. And 
it was just these gorgeous, um, you know, tech, like Kodachrome photos of beautiful people in beautiful places, lounging poolside. Um, and I started to read a bit on the introduction to that book, and I was just really hooked on the concept of that world. Um, you know, these socialites and celebrities, film stars, royalty, um, who would travel the world. You're listening to Liz Locke on The Richard Krause Show. Her novel, Follow the Sun, is available now wherever you buy fine books. And have this really luxurious lifestyle, but then it also makes you wonder what was going on behind the scenes, you know, behind the pretty photos. So I think a lot of my research delved into that. Um, I found a great book uh, called The International Nomads, and it was kind of the... So it was kind of a just a social register of the time that told you, you know, these are these are the do's and don'ts if you want to fit in with the jet set. Um, and certainly there's been a lot of other great publications on the jet set of the time period. I found a great uh, autobiography by Elizabeth Taylor's photographer, her personal photographer, who traveled with her and Richard Burton. Um, throughout that era. And it was just fascinating. And a lot of the places that, you know, he followed her do show up in Follow the Sun as well. Um, so yeah, I think, and I'll, actually movies were another big research item for me. Um, a lot of the document, like documentaries like Monterey Pop covering the music of that time period. Um, you know, there's just, there's a lot of really great um, you know, films out there that capture that era. Well, let's talk about Carolyn. And she is someone of generational wealth. She is someone uh, who is probably never wanted for anything, except that she wants something that's different than her family wants. She is uh, a musician, wants to uh, be a singer and a songwriter, which never going to happen if her parents had anything to say about it. So tell me a little bit about creating her. And she kind of struck me, as like maybe a less tragic Edie Sedgwick kind of character or something absolutely. like that. Absolutely, it's so funny you mentioned that because it was absolutely. Um, I read Edie's bio, one of one of the biographies on Edie, um, and she also came from a very privileged mm -hmm. background, um, and her, you know had a lot of family troubles. Um, you know, by the time she met up with Warhol, but um, yeah, she was absolutely an inspiration. I would say also uh, Graham Parsons. Um, he came yep. from a very privileged background as well. Again, Did I didn't know that. Yeah, I think he like dropped out of Harvard or something to go out to California. Um, again, a very trouble. I think his father also uh, committed suicide, like Carolyn's father in the book. It's interesting once you dive into some of these stories um, to see that, you know, people come from all different walks of life when they get into the music industry um, and you just never know. <laughs> So I, but, you know, I was trying to think of something um, for Caroline to, like, what does she want? I think that when we respond to fiction, we're responding to this, you know, what, first of all, what does the character want and can we relate to that? And I think that, you know, many of us artists, like, we have this big want and 
certainly like I have very supportive parents in the way that she did not, but that's why we keep reading is to see how she's going to overcome that, uh, that family situation. Are you working on another one right now? Are you currently uh, writing? I am. I got the idea for this probably a decade ago and I had been working on it and then, you know, finding an agent and I left an agent and found another one during that time. And then it had to go out, you know, on submission to publishers. Um, and then, dur- you know, during all of this, you know, you don't want to just be sitting around waiting on this book that may or may not mm-hmm. sell. So you start something else. Um, so the process took so long that I actually wrote another book in the process. <laughs> <laughs> and I had just sent it to my agent like two days before we got the call from Random House Canada and she emailed me and she's like, you're not going to believe this because I really thought, you know, Follow the Sun was just going to be this book that I loved that unfortunately just wound up in my desk drawer. Um, But happily, that's not the case. That was Liz Locke on The Richard Krause Show. She is the founder of Cinemasips.com, which is a really cool weekly guide to cocktail and movie pairings. So if you'd like to have a drink and sit down with a classic movie, Check it out, cinemasips.com. She is also the author of Follow the Sun and does a really good job of painting a portrait of the jet set era of the 1960s and placing some really interesting characters in the middle of that situation. Hallelujah. 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 That was, of course, a little taste of Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen's haunting hymn of desire, spirituality, and the mystery of life. Everybody knows that song, or at least you know one of the over 300 cover versions of the song. It's been recorded over and over again in the last couple of decades, but did you know that it took Leonard Cohen seven years to write the song? Did you know that when various positions, the album that contained the original version of Hallelujah was handed in to the record company, they didn't want to release it? Of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but at the time, the album was rejected by Walter Yetanoff, the head of Columbia Records. Refusing to release it domestically, he gave Cohen a little showbiz kiss-off. Leonard, he said, we know you're great, but we don't know if you're any good. It wasn't until other people latched onto the song that it took on a life of its own. John Cale of the Velvet Underground recorded a beautiful version of the song, which was then used on the soundtrack, of all things, of the Mike Myers animated Shrek movie. And then singer Jeff Buckley recorded a beautiful rendition of his own. Thanks to those recordings and the hundreds of others, the song is now a staple, and it's also the subject of a new documentary called Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song. The movie, directed by my guest today, documentary filmmakers Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine, looks at Cohen, his life, his career, and of course, that haunting hymn, Hallelujah. Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine join me via Zoom from San Francisco. You look around and you see a world that cannot be made sense of. You either raise your fists or you say hallelujah. 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 
I was a young reporter for Rolling Stone magazine in 74, doing a piece on Leonard. And he's so gracious. It goes like this, the fourth. Leonard, he was always a spiritual seeker. Unlocking the mysteries of life was his primary preoccupation. Sitting in a meditation hall for four or five hours a day, you kind of get straight with yourself. Leonard was often starting with this song. First thing, coffee, then working on Alleluia. There was a lot of verses. The number 180 comes to mind. The real song, where that comes from, no one knows that is grace, that is a gift. Tell me a little bit about your introduction uh, to Leonard Cohen. Have you always been fans and winding your way slowly towards this documentary? I mean, this is this is hard to say to a Canadian, you know, that I, but no, I, I, you know, neither of us were fans or even had tracked much about Leonard Cohen. Now, we, this weren't, is, we weren't unfans. No, like, but we, we liked what we had heard. But it is a it is a shameful thing to say, particularly to Canadians. <laughs> but uh, but when we had gone to uh, uh, a concert that our actually friends brought us to one of the concerts that went on the, those tours in the 2000s uh, and heard Leonard perform and exposed to the breadth of his catalog because that at three and a half hours, mm-hmm. you get a lot of Leonard Cohen songs and never did it outstay its welcome. It was it, it just left there floating in some other space that from that point and then the second time we went, uh, yes, then we were engaged uh, as as Leonard Cohen fans. Oh, I was an instant fan after seeing his, you know, first song at the first concert that we were privileged enough to go to. Thank God he had that end of, end of the life, or not end of his life, but you know, 70, 70 year old something tour. Unbelievable. Yeah. I'm sort of in the same boat as you. I grew up hearing the songs like Suzanne and all that, which didn't really appeal to my Kiss and Rolling Stones <laughs> loving, you know, uh, heart. So uh, Leonard Cohen for me was something that my parents would have listened to until I finally saw him live and the live performances were so much more playful than I thought they would be. It was funny. The songs of course are amazing. Uh, And for me, they just took on a life that they simply hadn't had uh, from the recordings that I'd heard. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think he poured everything he had in. I mean, Sharon Robinson says that he gave the audience every single night everything he had. You're listening to documentary filmmakers Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine on The Richard Krause Show. Their film, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, is now streaming on Crave. And he also had become such um, a deep, deeply wise human being. And his sense of humor was there all along, but he really let it out. He really let it rip yeah. in those that yeah. last five years of touring. There's such a great shot. Uh, at one point in your film, it's in that last tour, the you know five year long tour. He's in his seventies, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you see him skipping off the skate off the stage like someone who's 25 years old. It's really a, a wonderful image to have of him. It, it, it's beautiful, and and that he uh, could do that. I think that was in a set break between the two sets that comprise the three and a half hour, but even to say, okay, that's after 90 minutes of performing, there's no stool that he was sitting on, right? There's no bench he was sitting on. He was on his feet other than when he was on his knees, (laughs) he was on his feet singing that whole time. And I, I remember Sharon Robinson, who's become a friend now too. Sharon would say, oh my 
God, we're standing there for three and a half hours every night. So my feet would <laughs> ache. I'd go home and have to put them up on the bed. Why do you think it was that he didn't go to music or didn't pursue music really until he was 30 years old? And why do you think it was successful for him? Those are two really different questions. But I mean, the first question, um, why did it take him that long? He was a, an incredibly successful poet at a very early age. I mean, just after graduating from college, his first book, of poetry was published and it was acclaimed throughout Canada. Um, and then he wrote a couple novels. I mean, I kind of think, you know, you if you look at different interviews with Leonard, there, he gives different reasons for why he got into, into music. Sometimes he says uh, he didn't think he'd be able to ever really fully support himself writing poetry, even if he sold, you know, a bestseller poet, poetry book, it wasn't enough to live on. Um, other times he said, you know, I was always writing songs um, and playing songs. And he was of course in this country Western band as a high school student called the Buckskin Boys. So I think music was always part of this. I, I, I like the answer that he gave to Adrian Clarkson in that 1966 interview where, and it was of a moment, right? When the boundaries were dissolving, you know, the, that you, did, you didn't have to fall into the category of a singer or a poet or, a, and I, and I think that that may have encouraged him a bit as well, that, uh, look, he was a seeker. Yeah, he was see all his life he was seeking. Mm -hmm. um, and, and all his life he was also writing books, you know, that when he talks about all of the work as a piece, you know, that, that's really interesting that the poetry that he continued to write, uh, arguably the art in some of his journals, you know, that, and the songs, it's all of a, of a piece of a creative mind that, you, no, he wasn't a dancer. Okay, so we'll give him that one. <laughs> but then why was he successful? I mean, I think that there were these moments of serendipity that really went into it. I think, you know, the fact that even though someone up in, sorry, Canadians, up in Montreal told him that Suzanne was just like every other song that they'd mm -hmm. heard. Yeah, kind of shocking statement. Yeah, um, but through meeting Judy Collins and her immediate acknowledgement um, and sense of wow, this is not just any song, and the fact that she covered it and sort of put him out into the stratosphere as a songwriter, and then not that long after that, she said, "Look, Leonard, you got to sing your own songs," and and you know the forcing of Leonard out on stage, and then his embarrassment and then the making of him, making him get back in the saddle after he left the stage. I think he had just these moments along the way that led to where he stood on that stage in his seventies, mm -hmm. um, delivering the most incredible concert in the world. I started this interview by asking why they chose to tell Cohen's entire life story through the lens of one very specific song. The song, encapsulates so much of what Leonard grappled with throughout his life. So if you're gonna take one song that touches on themes that are in a lot of his other songs, mm -hmm. but puts it all in one package, and a song that is so well known, uh, often strangely interpreted <laughs> in cover versions, and other times beautifully so, um, that seemed like a great way then to open uh, Pandora's box there and see what's going on with all the, the conflicting impulses and explorations of, of Leonard Cohen, the, the, the seeker. So, but the other funny thing, it, we didn't know this going into the movie, but at, over time we realized that to limb what those preoccupations were and continued to be after even the writing of the song, we needed to know his other music. Mm -hmm. And so there are 22 other Leonard Cohen songs in the, in the movie. We never thought that was gonna be the case. 
and, but and yet that's it's essential like to, to understand hallelujah it does help to see something about suzanne it does help to know bird on a wire it doesn't so it all sort of fuses itself into place i feel like it it so helped to have this prism that we had chosen, mm -hmm. um, you know, and every time the question that we would ask ourselves is how does this fit in to that particular prism. Um, it was a it was incredibly good discipline, um, mm -hmm. you know, we were determined not to make a film that was uh, one second over two hours, um, you know, and I think to do Leonard justice and look at his entire life, I think it would be a series. Um, but it was also, it was just a gift to go, well, could we, it was a challenge to ourselves. Could we pull this off and, um, and look at this amazing artist and his rich life through this prism? I understand that you had done sort of a rough cut of the first half of the movie, the first part of the movie. You showed it to Robert Corey, who was Leonard Cohen's longtime manager, and he gave you access to Leonard Cohen's journals. What a treasure trove uh, that must have been. It was, it was a hard one treasure trove to get access to, or a hard one access to a treasure. I mean, basically what happened is, I think the earliest time that we really thought hard about the journals was when we were interviewing Ratso Sloman, mm -hmm. who was our first interview back in- And, and he was a confidant of Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan. He's a name, if you've read books about the Rolling Stones or any rock and roll figure in the 70s and 80s, Ratso's name comes up. That's right. Yeah, he was a young Rolling Stone reporter in the mid 70s when, when he first interviewed Leonard. And they just really hit it off and continued to have this dialogue that went on through the early 2000s. And he, Ratso generously bequeathed us with his tapes of all of those interactions. But when we were sitting with him that first interview, he talked, he started talking about the journals. And, um, and then a couple other people mentioned these mythological journals and we went to Robert Corey, um, Leonard's once manager, now head of the estate and started asking him about these journals. And he would sort of, for the first year, he just had this little Mona Lisa smile on his face and he would never um, admit <laughs> to what extent they were real. You're listening to Dan Geller and Dana Goldfein on The Richard Krause Show. Their documentary on Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, is now streaming on Crave. Well, we knew they were real. It was more because- We didn't know how many there were. Well, and we didn't know whether they were extant. You know, did, right. did Leonard toss them out? Did they get lost, you know, somewhere along the way between Montreal and Los Angeles? Who knew, right? So that that was the, the question. Where are those? journals and um and at, then at a certain point a little further on robert brought one out uh and when we were down in his office and he showed it to us we couldn't touch it we couldn't touch it uh we just showed it to us it was you know just a, a, a one of these wedding of the appetites and then eventually we really uh having fully earned each other's uh, um trust and responsibility he opened the doors fully robert looked at i think we had cut first a first first early pass at the first say 30 minutes or so and um we arranged to sit with robert and look at it actually in morgan neville's office morgan neville's the amazing director of 20 feet from stardom and many yeah, many yeah. other great yeah. films and he's an ep on this project anyway so so morgan was generous enough to lend us his office and sit with the two of us and robert as we watched for a terrifying 30 minutes um <laughs> robert watched the film. Um, and at the end of it, you know, we were sitting there on eggshells and he turned and he said, I think that this is really, really gonna be good. 
Um, and everything just started shifting after that. Um, it's not like he immediately opened the doors and showed us the journals, but we could sense that it might happen. Um, and then as we continued to show him little bits and pieces, he became more and more comfortable with the direction we were going and what we were doing. And he started learning new things from what we were uncovering. And um, eventually he was like, okay, here you go. And did they point you in a different direction, do you think? Or were there revelations that came up? Documentary filmmaking isn't a linear art. Things come up, things happen. You don't have an end point often. I remember the great Canadian documentarian, Alan King, once told me, he said, I know my movies are finished when I run out of money. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for us, usually it's when we run out of money and we have submitted to a film festival that, is, that accepts us and we right. have to deliver. Yeah. I, it, with this one, the, it, it, the movie pulled us in directions. The more we wound up with um, archival interview material with Leonard, the more the movie began to gravitate toward Leonard and, and Leonard's mind and Leonard's journey and preoccupations. Uh, you know, Less so that the interviews that we conducted um, pulled us in any particular direction. Uh, but listening to Leonard and unearthing all of this incredible interview footage from 1966 you know, through 2016. And his eloquence in those interviews, oh. it's almost as if you're reading poetry off the page as it spills out of his mouth. It's unbelievable. Well, it's we, unbelievable. We were talking about this earlier that you would expect someone interviewed as often as, Le as Leonard was to start repeating those those stories and repeat or repeating phrasings um and he didn't well and it's almost as if he is reading a script in his own head that he's writing as he's delivering mm. i mean one of the things i was just thinking about as you were asking this question is there's this moment we found this unbelievable archival footage where bob dylan's being given an award by um what the this ASCAP uh, songwriters right. anyway and, and Leonard is asked off the cuff you know um what's your relationship with Bob Dylan or you know how much have you been influenced by Bob Dylan he delivers this stunningly articulate hilarious dry dry droll like I don't know it's I don't know how long it is you know like yeah. like outpouring of his relationship with Dylan that just brings the house down and he did not write that ahead of time. Right. So. That was Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine on The Richard Krause Show. Their doc on Leonard Cohen, Hallelujah. Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, is now streaming on Crave. A big thanks to all my guests today, but of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>